Have you ever been through a hurricane before? I have. August 24th, 1992, my wife and I were living in South Florida. We didn't have kids at the time, thankfully, and Hurricane Andrew ripped through South Florida. In fact, you'll notice the next picture here. This hurricane barreled into South Florida at sustained winds of 150, 160. We had gusts up to 180. You could put the lights back on. And when I was preparing for the hurricane, we were living in a duplex in Homestead. That took the brunt of the hurricane. In fact, after it went through, we were without a phone for two months. We were without electricity for three months. It was just everything got turned upside down. But I'll tell you what, a lot of people got blessed because they got new pools, new sofas. I mean, it was like the adjusters came in and said, if you got a good adjuster, people walked away with $100,000 and they abandoned their houses and they left and they moved South Florida. But one of the things when the hurricane was approaching, a newscaster would come on, and I'll never forget this one, and he would say, Andrew's coming, Andrew's coming, here's how fast it is, you need to be ready, you need to be ready. In fact, one particular gentleman, he heeded the warning, and he said this, I want to be ready, I lived through the hurricane of 35, and we didn't even have time to board up the houses. The hurricane went up to Lake Okeechobee, and it did a U-turn, which sometimes hurricanes do, end quote. Other people, on the other hand, did not prepare for Hurricane Andrew because I don't think they knew what to expect. People didn't board up their windows. Some people actually went out surfing, and they lost their lives. But you see, the Bible says that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, and you and I need to be ready for His return. But you know what? There are a lot of Christians that are not heeding that warning. They're not taking it seriously. There's a lot of people in our culture, if you talk about the second coming of Christ, they look at you very strangely, like, what are you talking about? That just seems foreign to them. But the Bible says as Christians, we need to be ready. To see this, turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We want to look this morning at verses 8 through 14. And the title of this message is, Ready or Not, Here I Come. You remember playing that game? Ready or Not, Here I Come. Well, Jesus is coming back, and the Bible says that we need to be ready for His return. Now, remember, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Roman Christians, he wrote it about AD 55. The Apostle Paul was expecting, as well as the other apostles, for Jesus to come back in their lifetime. Obviously, they didn't see the long stretch of time that we're in right now. But they were anticipating His return, because even 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And so they thought Jesus was coming back. And so Paul here is writing the Roman Christians, and he's basically telling them that they need to be prepared for His return. And what he's going to do here is gives a, give us three ways by which you and I can be prepared for the return of Christ. But before I go into the preparation that you and I need to engage in, let me share with you briefly just a scheme, a jet tour, or a bird's eye view of the eschatological events and where they're headed. If you look at this diagram here, and by the way, before I came on, on, comment on this, remember this, history is linear, it's not cyclical. What do I mean by that? Most worldviews, when you look at other religions, like Hinduisms and all the isms and spasms out there, what they basically believe is that life is cyclical. You die, you're reincarnated, you come back, and on and on it goes. It's an endless cycle of death and rebirth. Christianity, on the other hand, as well as Islam, although Christianity is right, teaches that history is linear, 
God began it all, and God's going to consummate it all with the return of Jesus Christ, and you and I are privileged to know that. So, what does the Bible say about the return of Christ? Here is just a general overview. I know John has gone over with uh, this with you over the years, and uh, so you probably have a good understanding of it, but right now we're in this present age, and we're awaiting the rapture of the church. This event is imminent. Imminent simply means it can happen at any time. There's no signs that need to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. Once the church is raptured, we're caught up in the heavens, 1 Thessalonians 4. The Bible says when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with uh, Israel, that's when the seven-year tribulation starts. You could read about that in Daniel 9. The first three and a half years is the beginning of sorrows, the birth pangs. And then, of course, the last half is the great tribulation. And in the middle is when the Antichrist desecrates the temple. He sets himself up to be God, demands the world worship him. You cannot buy or sell unless you take the mark of the beast. This is the seven-year tribulation. That's where we're headed. Now, we're going to be taken out during that time. And there are different schemes of this that Christians divide over. At the end of the seven years, Christ is going to return at his second coming, and what he's going to do is set up a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom where he's going to reverse the curse on the earth. You and I are going to rule and reign with him as his vice regents. And at the end of that thousand-year kingdom when Satan is bound, he's going to be let loose for a short time, and the Bible says God's going to recrush that rebellion, and then God is going to uncreate the universe. He's going to uncreate it. And he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where you and I will rule in righteousness with Jesus Christ forever and ever. So really, that's the grand scheme. Now, you take all the Scripture and you fit them into one of these categories. Go to the next slide real quick. This one, you may need to darken the lights a little bit more because it's kind of dark. But this is really the book of Revelation. It's a timeline. And you see here the rapture of the church. Many people, it's implied here in Revelation 4 and 5 when John's caught up to heaven. And then when you get into these chapters, verse 8 all the way to verse 10, it talks about the trumpet judgments, it talks about the seal judgments. When you get towards the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about the bowl judgments. The bowl judgments happen in rapid fire succession. They're like saucers, they're dumped out, and right before Jesus Christ comes back, you have the bowl judgments mentioned here in the book of Revelation. Finally, in Revelation 19, Jesus comes back, 20, he judges, and then 21 and 22, we have the eternal state. So that's really just a general overview. John has been through the book of Revelation with you, and we're going to go through that book eventually again, but that's really the general overview of prophecy. Now, people say today, well, are we closer than previous generations? Because previous generations believe it was their generation when Jesus was going to come back, and Jesus did not come back. Well, again, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, although I do work at a nonprofit organization. I don't know the future of where this is headed, but I do know this. We are closer now to the return of Christ than previous generations. You say, well, isn't that obvious, Mike, just by the elapse of time? Yeah, but I think there are certain eschatological events that have happened that I think indicate that we are closer. Let me share them with you, and then we'll dig into the text. One indicator is Israel becoming a nation in 1948. That was a major sign. The Bible talks about that, how God would regather Israel from the four corners of the earth, and we've seen that in our lifetime. Secondly, the rise of Islam and the alignment of certain nations. Islam, I believe, is going to play a role in the end times because if you read Ezekiel 36 and 37, it talks about it, the battle of Gog and Magog, and there's debate as to what that battle is. 
there's going to be a Russian-Arab coalition. And we know that Russia and Iran are going to come down on Israel. And right now, there is that relationship, that symbiotic relationship that's taking place. Thirdly, there is a push and the preparation for the rebuilding of the third temple. The Jews in Jerusalem want to rebuild the temple. And there's a push going on right now for that to happen. There's a lot of preparation taking place. Number four, there is an increase in iniquity. The Bible talks about in the latter days, there would be an increase in iniquity, and we're beginning to see it reach a fever pitch. And we also see technological advances. Some people believe Daniel chapter 12 indicates that. But I believe technology and the advancement of it is critical to the mark of the beast. We don't know exactly what that is, but I do believe it's some type of technology because how is everybody going to take that? How can you not buy or sell unless you have some type of technological device? Then there's the increase of natural disasters. There's always been natural disasters, but we do see an increase that has taken place in our generation. Then there is the globalization, the push for one world economy, one world religion. We see that push going on right now. Remember, generations ago, there was not a global economy. Globalization was not possible. We know what's going on in Russia right now just by watching the news. And so globalization, unlike previous generations, indicate that we are fast moving to that. And then, of course, the volatility of the economy, the worldwide economy. What I mean by that is if the economy implodes, not only in America but around the world, what will happen is that will create a power vacuum by which the Antichrist could step in and he's the one that can solve that problem and say you cannot buy or sell unless you take the mark. And then finally, there is the gospel being preached all around the world. There's still a lot of people that are not reached for Jesus Christ, but right now the gospel is penetrating the furthest parts of the world. And so I believe all these indicators, there's probably some more that I've left out, I believe all these indicators seem to point that the rapture of the church is going to happen. Now, I'm not a date setter, the Bible says not to do that, but we are fast moving towards that climactic event. Remember, history is linear. God began it all, God will consummate it all. So knowing these theological truths, the question is, how are we to respond? Well, Paul here gives us three responses that you and I are to have, and really they parallel what we do in the morning. Paul says we need to wake up, we need to clean up, and we need to dress up. That's exactly what we do in the morning. We wake up, hopefully we shower, we clean up, we brush our teeth, and then, of course, we dress up. Well, that's what he says we're to do spiritually. First of all, we must wake up. Notice, if you will, verse 11 of Romans 13. He says, do this. Well, what's the this? What he talked about in the previous chapter about loving other people and how it fulfills the law? He says we need to love one another. Why? Knowing the time. Now, this isn't clock time. This is an epic or a season. He said knowing the season that we are in, that it is already the hour or the season for you to, here it is, say it out loud, awaken from your sleep. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. The Apostle Paul is saying the first response you and I need to have, because Jesus Christ is fast approaching, is we need to wake up spiritually. Because our salvation is closer now than when we first became a Christian. Now, whenever you read the word salvation, you have to know what tense it's talking about by looking at the context. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Bible, salvation has three tenses. 
Let me visualize it for you. The first tense happens in the past. It's called justification. I am delivered from the penalty of sin. The second tense of salvation happens in the present, not the past, but the present. This is called sanctification. That's called justification. I'm delivered from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, I'm being delivered daily from the power of sin. And the final form of salvation is glorification. I'm being delivered from ultimately the presence of sin. So what you have here is justification, you have sanctification, and the Bible says you have glorification, past, present, future. So when Paul says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, here's the question. Is he talking about justification? No. Sanctification? No. He's talking about glorification, the return of Christ, when we're in his presence and we have our resurrected bodies. And he's saying because our salvation is closer, you and I need to awaken from our spiritual sleep. Now, what does it mean to be uh, asleep spiritually? It simply means that you're not in the game. You're not on the front lines. You're not focused on your walk with God. You're asleep spiritually. There's a sense of carelessness. You're kind of in this state of spiritual lethargy. There's really an apathy, and we all have to fight apathy. I have to fight it just like you, but especially in the American church. Why? Because we are blessed with prosperity, and there's nothing wrong with prosperity, but here's the danger of prosperity. Prosperity is like Novocaine. You know what it does? It numbs us. It makes us too comfortable, and what happens is we can fall asleep spiritually, and God has to periodically wake us up. That's what God does in revival. You know what He does? He wakes us up. You see, revival is God coming down and representing himself because we misrepresent him. See, when we misrepresent God, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come down and represent myself. And God wakens us spiritually. I wasn't a good student in high school. Some of you may relate to this. I just wasn't interested. I wasn't focused. I had ADD, and I'm sure some of you realize that. But um, I remember my senior year. And I didn't like to do homework. In fact, I viewed my homework like I liked my steak, uh, rare and not well done. And so one particular evening, my mom came to me and she said, I got a call today from your English teacher. And, she, and, and your English teacher said, you're not going to pass this class. And if you don't pass this class, you're not graduating. She said, you're going to get in your room right now and you're going to study. My mom is Middle Eastern. Have you ever seen that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? That was my house. Everything was just, you yelled everything. And so my mom says, you're going in your room and you're going to study. And I wasn't going to argue with her because I knew she was hot under the collar. So I went into the room and I opened my English book. And typical, I'm sitting there reading and guess what happened? I fell asleep. You ever have that happen before? While you're studying? Sometimes it happens when we read the Bible, right? We're reading the Bible. And by the way, that's a great way to fall asleep sometimes before you go to bed, have the Word of God on your mind. Well, I fell asleep. Well, my mom happened to come by and check on me because she knew my tendencies. And I remember when she opened the door and saw me asleep, she yelled at the top of her lungs. She said, Michael, she said, get up right now. And I jumped up. And you know what? The Spirit many times does that to us. The Spirit does it gently. And sometimes the Spirit has to shout. But here's the problem. If we're not careful, we can keep hitting the spiritual snooze button. Many times we hit the spiritual snooze button. And listen, the world, the flesh, and the devil, you know, what the, you know what it wants to do? It wants to lull you to sleep spiritually because we get sucked into the vortex of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and sometimes it's very gradual. It happens very subtly. 
Now remember, God awakened us at salvation. Look what Ephesians chapter 5 says. This is a great passage. Many people don't realize it's a, actually an early church hymn that was sung. He says in Ephesians 5, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, and here he quotes what many people believe is an early Christian hymn, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Many people believe that this was an invitation to salvation. And so what he's implying here is this, at salvation, God awakened you spiritually. You were dead in your sins. And what God did was he performed a spiritual resurrection. He raised you from the dead. You were awakened spiritually. But here's the deal. We got to be vigilant now that we're saved to maintain that focus and not fall asleep spiritually. Because that's our tendency. We got to take spiritual no-dos on a regular basis. Now, I don't know about you, but often what helps me not to fall asleep spiritually, and you know this, John has preached this to you over the years, over and over again, you got to be in the Word you got to be in prayer. you got to be in fellowship with other believers. you got to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. you got to be dealing with sin in your life. And listen, I don't know about you, but one of the things that lights a fire under me is getting involved in serving. You say, yeah, but Mike, that's what you're paid to do. Listen, even if I wasn't paid to do this role, I would do it anyway. Even prior to be me being in full-time ministry, I served because I wanted to serve. But I'll tell you what it does, it lights a fire under me. Yesterday we went out to five points, and I was feeling the second law of thermodynamics. I didn't want to go. Everything was militating against it. I was tired. You know, it's a Saturday. You don't want to go out, and I don't want to go out to five points. But I said, Nimmer, stop it. You're going. And I don't want to go. But I'll tell you what, when we got done and I came back, I was lit up. I felt on fire. And you see, that's what service does. It helps you to get out of yourself, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying if you don't go to five points, you can't be growing and you can't be on fire for Jesus. Listen, find your niche. Find what lights a fire under you. But get involved and serve. And so the Bible says, if you and I are going to be ready for the return of Christ, we got to wake up spiritually. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you awake spiritually? You say, Mike, how do I know if I'm asleep spiritually? You're a Sunday Christian only. You're hit and miss. You're not in the Word. You're not in prayer. Jesus is not the center and circumference of your life. You're a casual Christian. And listen, the church today is littered. The landscape of Christianity is littered with Christians who are sleeping spiritually. And we got to wake up because when Jesus Christ comes back, I don't know about you, but I want to be fully engaged in doing His work. And so the first response is we need to wake up. There's a second response, he says, we need to clean up. We need to clean up. Notice what he says here in verses 12 and 13. He says, the night is nearly over. And here, night is a metaphor for man's reign. It's a metaphor for sin. And he's saying, man's day is going to come to an end. By the way, are you listening? Say amen. The Bible never talks about the end of the world. It doesn't use that terminology. It uses the phrase, the end of the age. Right now, we're in this present evil age. It's the day of darkness. It's man's day. God is sovereign, but he's allowing Satan to rule right now on the earth. But he has a leash on him. He's saying that day is fast coming to an end. He says the night is nearly over. The day or the return of Christ, the day of holiness is almost here. And so here is where he says we need to clean up. He says, so 
let us put aside the deeds of darkness. In other words, you need to clean up your life. Let us, verse 3, or verse 13, behave decently as in the daytime. In other words, you're children of light. Act like children of light. Act consistent with who you are as a Christian. And he tells us what specifically we need to put aside. Now, this list here obviously is not exhaustive. You could read the fruits of the flesh in Galatians 5. But I believe he was dealing with this because, listen, Rome was known for its debauchery. I mean, Rome, they used to love to have drinking parties, and they had what were called vomitarians. A vomitarian was a hole in the ground. You would drink yourself into a stupor, you would gluttonize yourself, and then you would vomit in that hole, and you'd go back doing it again. That was the Romans, and so he says... You're not to be in carousing and drunkenness. By the way, those two things are often used together, immorality and intoxication. Typically, when people get intoxicated, what happens? Their defenses go down, and they become sexually immoral. In fact, the word here was used when they'd come back from battle, they'd have a big drunken bash. Or if an athletic event took place, just like in our culture today, when a particular city, maybe their team wins, what happens? Everybody goes crazy, they get drunk, some of them even turn over cars and they bust windows. He's saying, look, put that off. Don't be involved in that. Don't be involved in sexual immorality, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex. He says, put it aside. In fact, that word debauchery here, immorality, it's used in the Greek of sleeping with anyone and everyone. It's a base sort of immorality. Today, we would talk about pornography. And then he mentions dissension and jealousy. These are two relational sins. Dissension is strife, always arguing, always want to pick a fight, always being contentious. Now, we're going to agree to disagree on things, and we're going to have conflict. Conflict's an inevitable part of life. But he's saying, don't let this rule your life. Jealousy. See, a lot of this gets in the church today, and what happens is the church needs to clean up its act. Now, remember, at salvation, again, we were made pure positionally. The Bible says, I put off the old man, and I put on the new man. And so what happens is you and I need to clean up our lives by living pure lives and acting according to who we are in Jesus Christ. In fact, this verse that I just read to you, St. Augustine read this verse, and it's actually what converted him. For those of you who don't know St. Augustine, he was one of the theologians of the church. Catholics today claim him as their theologian. Protestants claim him as their theologian. He was a very brilliant man but he had a predilection towards prostitutes, and he lived a very sordid, immoral life. And one day, he was very, very discouraged. He was very empty, which is what that life leads to. It brings momentary pleasure, but it doesn't bring true satisfaction. He was empty, and he was in his backyard, and he heard this voice, and it was a girl. And here is what the girl said in Latin. She blurted it out loud. She said, tole lege." Tole lege, and what that means is pick up and read, pick up and read. It startled him. He had a Bible in front of him, the Latin Vulgate, written by Jerome. He picked it up, he read it, and it was this passage that I just read to you, and God convicted him of his debauchery, and he got saved right there. And his mother, Helena, had been praying for him for, I think, 20 or 30 years, and he got converted. And so he had to walk that life. He had to clean up his life. And tradition says this, that as he was walking with God, one particular day he was down the street and one of his fellow prostitutes that 
he used to consort with, she saw him, and she said out loud, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. Well, he knew, and he was like, man, I don't want to deal with her. He just kept walking. Finally, she kept saying, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. He finally turned back to her, and he said, it is no longer I, and he kept walking. And you see, God has transformed us. Because we are holy, we need to walk in a lifestyle of holiness. God has purified us. And listen, we all have to put off the flesh. We put it off at salvation, but then there's that ongoing process of dealing with sin in our life. And some of you, including me, we have certain things that we probably don't battle with anymore like we used to battle in our pre-Christian days. There are some sins you could dangle in front of me. I'm not going to be tempted. I'm not pulled towards homosexuality. And I'm not criticizing those who struggle with that because it's a real struggle. I'm not pulled to that. I'm not pulled to getting drunk anymore. I'm not saying I'm above sin. I'm just simply, those are not pulls for me. But I have other pulls. I have other tendencies that I have to wrestle with on a daily basis. And so do you. And so we deal with it through confession and repentance. In fact, when he says lay aside, the Greek word there means to lay aside a filthy garment. It reminded me of the time when I was in high school in ninth grade. I had two football buddies. They asked me to go to Waco, Texas with them hunting. Their dads were taking them, so they said, Nimmer, you want to go? I said, yeah, I'd love to hunt. Never been. So we went to Waco, Texas, got in the back of a pickup truck. We had shotguns. We were shooting everything that came out of the bush. And I remember we had four-wheelers, and we went to this area that was, it's like a mud pit. And we did four-wheeling. We had a great time. But in the back, all that mud began to come up, and we were caked in it. And I remember before we went into the house, the person who owned the house said, before you come in, you got to derobe. You got to strip all that filth off of you because you're not coming in. And you see, the Bible says the clothing of sin was stripped at salvation, but then there's that ongoing confession and repentance that you and I need to have, whereby we're dealing with sin. And listen, we got to deal with it ruthlessly because we all tend to justify sin. We all tend to rationalize. Well, no one's perfect. And listen, no one's going to be perfect. We're all going to battle. We're all going to have those besetting sins. But here's the question. Am I too comfortable? Am I too comfortable in them? And so Jesus is coming back. I believe it's soon. And the first response you and I need to have is we need to wake up. Secondly, we need to what? Clean up. There's one final response that you and I need to have, and that is we need to dress up. We need to dress up. Notice, if you will, what he says here in verse 13 and 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. He's saying strip yourselves of that, but notice the contrast here. He says rather, and here's where we need to dress up, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In verse 12, he says, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness, and he says it differently here. He says, put on the armor of light. See, we're in a spiritual warfare. We got to dress up with Jesus Christ. We got to dress up with the armor of God based on Ephesians chapter 6. And so after I wake up, after I clean up, the Bible says I must daily dress up. Now keep in mind, you put on Christ at salvation. Just as God awakened you at salvation, 
He cleaned you up at salvation. He also dressed you up at salvation because Galatians 3 says we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look at this slide here. Dim the lights. You'll notice here the Bible says this is the great exchange that took place at salvation, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says my sin was imputed to Christ, and the Bible says his righteousness was imputed to me. Go to the next slide. And the Bible says you and I are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can put the lights back on. See, positionally, I already am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but here's what I got to do daily. Every single day, I have to go into the Jesus closet. Because I'll tell you what, there's a flesh closet, there's a Satan closet, there's a world closet, and you know what? That closet's very, very appealing. And that closet has all kinds of bright clothes, all kinds of nice shoes. And you know what? That closet talks. Never. Come in this closet. Come on, put on that shirt of immorality. Come on, Nimmer, think about this. Don't you want to put on that old garment? Then you got the Christ closet. That closet has what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and all the fruits of the Spirit that John's been talking about. And those are the things that we're to clothe ourselves with. You see, what he's saying is putting on Christ means we daily walk in the power of the Spirit and we walk in Christ-likeness. Because listen, Romans 8 says that's God's ultimate purpose is to make us more like Jesus Christ. And listen, I don't always like this, but God's ultimate priority for me is not my happiness. And you know what? We struggle with that as Americans because we often have this self-centered view that God exists for me. The Bible says the opposite, I exist for him. And sometimes God has to take out his chisel and he has to work in our life. Years ago, I went to the Columbia Fair. I love going to fairs. By the way, carnival, you get the word carny, you get the word carnal Christian. You see how that all ties together? By the way, it's not a sin to go to the carnival. That's not what I'm saying. But one year I went to the carnival, especially when you get those hamburgers with the donuts, you know, (laughs) those things are wonderful. You guys ever had those? Or like Phil, he loves eating deep-fried butter, right, Phil? No, just kidding. (laughs) I went there one time, and this guy had a block of wood, and he had a chainsaw. Look at the picture. Now, it wasn't always this. It was just a piece of wood, and then I watched him. And when he got done, he carved a bear out. And you know, I thought, what a great illustration of what Jesus does in our life. Jesus has a predetermined image, just like this man did. He could see in his mind eye what he wanted. And then he took that chainsaw and he carved it according to the predetermined image. And the Bible says in Romans 8, God has foreordained that you and I become like Jesus Christ. And you know what God does? He takes out his chainsaw. And you know what he does? He carves those things in our life that shouldn't be there. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes God takes out his pruning knife and he prunes us down to the stump. You ever been there before? 
And sometimes we say, God, I'm bleeding, I'm hurting, I'm struggling, God. But you know what? God is with us in the midst of that. We don't become like Christ in the midst of blessing. It's often through our suffering that we become more like Christ. And God has an image that he's shaping in our lives. And so Jesus Christ is coming back. I know we all affirm that here, but here's the question. How do I know I really believe that? Well, the Bible says, if I really believe it, I'm going to wake up. It's like I said earlier, you don't want to be a Rice Krispie Christian. You know what a Rice Krispie Christian is? You've eaten Rice Krispies before. I like Rice Krispies. One time it dawned on me, I poured the milk in, and as soon as the milk hit, what did I hear? And I thought, that's how most Christians start off their Christian life. They're snap crackling and popping for Jesus. They're all excited. But what happens after five minutes if you don't eat the cereal? It gets soggy. A lot of Christians become soggy in their Christian life. So Paul says, wake up. And then he says, clean up. That's a daily process. Being in the Word, washing yourself in the Word, confessing and repenting. And then he says, guys, you got to dress up. Be Christ-like. Don't look for ways to gratify your flesh, he says. Don't go out of your way to look to gratify the flesh. He says, starve the flesh. Starve it. Now, as I close, as you know in the Bible, marriage in Jewish culture had two phases. First phase was the betrothal that typically lasted a year. And by the way, you were considered legally married. Mary and Joseph, they had the betrothal period mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. And they were legally married. But for that year, the groom didn't have contact with the wife. So Joseph didn't have much contact, if at all, any with Mary. And then at the end of the year, they would have the wedding ceremony, which lasted a week, the whole celebration, and they consummated the marriage. It was two phases. The first phase is when Joseph found out that Mary was what? He thought she had been unfaithful. And normally you and I would because it's not every day that your daughter comes home and says, oh, Dad, uh, God impregnated me. What? You would say, you're one fry short of a Happy Meal. Something's going on here. Well, that's not what happened. So God had to clarify for Joseph the deal. It was during that betrothal period that Joseph thought Mary was unfaithful. Now, here's what the Bible says. Watch this. We're in the betrothal period right now with God. Jesus is our bridegroom. He's in heaven. We're the bride of Christ. And right now, he's away from us. And we're in that betrothal period. And you know what he wants from us as we're awaiting his return? He wants us to be chaste virgins. He doesn't want us to commit spiritual adultery with the world. You say, but Mike, how do I know God's going to deliver on his promise to come back and take me to heaven with him? God has given me an engagement ring. You say, what's the engagement ring? It's the Holy Spirit. The Greek word Erebon means Holy Spirit. God has given me a divine engagement ring guaranteeing that he will consummate the marriage. But during this waiting period, as we're awaiting the second coming, we're in the betrothal period. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I don't want you to be led astray in your pure devotion to him. We're in that uh, betrothal period. So let me ask you a question. Are you committing spiritual adultery this morning? spiritual adultery. Old Testament uses that term. You say, what's spiritual adultery? When you shack up with another lover? Some of us are shacking up with the world. We're married to another lover. And God says, no, I'm a jealous God. I want you all to myself. And while you're waiting for my return, I want you to be about serving me. See, part of dressing up is dressing up for service, dressing up for warfare, being on the front line. 
So God is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He says, wake up. He says, clean up. And he says, what? Dress up. And that's our desire for you. We want to see God work here at Calvary Chapel. We want to see everybody involved serving him on fire for him as we're all at different stages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord God, for reminding us of your truth. Lord God, we all need to be reminded. I thank you, Lord God, for the blessed hope of the church, the second coming. And Father, your word says that we're to long for your appearing. And so we would say like the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus. And if you're sitting here this morning, one of the ways you can make sure that you're ready is that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says you don't want to be caught naked on the day of judgment. Because if you're not clothed in Jesus Christ's garment, the Bible says you're clothed in your own righteousness and you're going to be weighed in the balance and found wanting. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the first step in getting ready is to repent of your sin and trust fully and completely in the death and resurrection of Christ to save you. Your good life can't get you in. And if you've never done that this morning, please talk to John or I after the service. We'd love to talk with you or email us. Or if you're here this morning and maybe you're asleep spiritually, maybe you're just a Sunday Christian only, would you recommit your life to the Lord this morning afresh and not just go through the motions and say, Jesus, I want to be about your business. I want to be serving you. I want to be knowing you. I want you to be first. Just take a minute now to pray to God quietly. Jesus, we thank you that we're going to rule with you in heaven, in the millennial kingdom. What a great hope. What a great future that we have. But God, I pray that it would impact our behavior now. And Lord, as you say in 1 John chapter 2, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Father, may we not be ashamed when you return, but may we be living for you. In Jesus' name.